0: This is the Stillwater Revival Books audiobook selection. Please join us at PuritanDownloads.com to see all the new 99 cent digital downloads, Reformation and Puritan books, Psalm singing MP3s, and so on, the new SWRB Puritan hard drive, and much more. The new website is state of the art and contains Puritan hard drive videos, Puritan quote videos, free samples of Psalm singing. MP3s, a powerful search engine, new material, Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that you may follow through an RSS feed, and it is very easy to navigate. That's PuritanDownloads.com. In John Bunyan's famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress is a story of The Man in the Iron Cage. In this edition of the Puritan Reform podcast, we're going to examine the man in the iron cage, and we're going to see if this is purely fictional, or if this really could happen. Now, nobody would pretend to say that John Bunyan's allegory is inspired, but there is a lot that we can learn from it. But are there things in this testimony that may be, in fact, erroneous or not at all helpful? Let's take a look at it. But to begin who was the man in the iron cage. So he took him by the hand again, that is, the interpreter, and led him into a very dark room, where there sat a man in an iron cage. Now the man to look on seemed very sad. He sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hands folded together, and he sighed as if he would break his heart. There is a most extraordinary real-life testimony of such a man in an iron cage by the name of Francis Spira in the mid-16th century. A biographer wrote, Among English Puritans, the most common and the most feared of Satan's temptations was the temptation to despair, the loss of hope in one's own salvation. Perhaps the most widely known example of despair in the 16th and 17th century was the case of an Italian lawyer, Francis Spira. In 1548, Spira converted to Lutheranism and began to spread the Lutheran message to others. Under pressure from the Catholic Church, however, he renounced his Protestant faith. He then became convinced that he was a reprobate destined for hell. The story of Spira spread throughout Europe, surfacing in sermons and treatises dealing with despair. The actual testimony of what happened follows. On his journey home, Spira began to reconsider his decision to abjure his faith. In the midst of doubt, he believes that he hears a voice of Christ. He considered his constancy in Christ's cause, and to be plain how impiously he had denied Christ, and thus partly with fear and partly with shame being confounded, he thought he heard a voice speaking unto him in this manner, Spira, what doest thou hear? Doest thou indeed think eternal life so mean as that you prefer this present life before it? Now aspire it in a wilderness of doubts, He consults friends, who all confirm that he needs to go through with the second abjuration, and not to betray his wife and children, especially since, already the greatest part is performed. This was the last blow of the battle, and Spira, utterly overcome, goes to the praetor, and proffers to perform his foresaid promise. Spira went through with his public recantation, as he had been instructed by the papal legate, On his way home he again thought he had heard the voice of Christ. No sooner was he departed, but he thought he heard a direful voice saying to him, Thou wicked wretch, thou hast denied me. Thou hast renounced the covenant of thy obedience. Thou hast broken thy vow. Hence, apostate, bear with thee the sentence of thy eternal damnation. He, trembling and quaking in body and mind, fell down in a swoon. Relief was at hand for the body, but from that time forward he never found any peace or ease of his mind. But continuing in incessant torments, he professed that he was captive under the revenging hand of the great God, that he heard continually that fearful sentence of Christ, that just judge, that he knew that he was utterly undone, that he could neither hope for grace, nor Christ's intercession with God the Father in his behalf. Convinced that he was a reprobate, Spira fell into a deep depression, refusing to eat or drink. Many attempts to console Spira proved in vain, and he died in despair beyond description. The writer continues, Eventually Spira was allowed to return home, where he soon died. THE TEXT IS NOT CLEAR ABOUT THE CAUSE OR TIME OF HIS DEATH. SOME ASSUME THAT HE DIED OF THIRST OR HUNGER, OTHERS THAT HE COMMITTED SUICIDE. THUS HE WENT HOMEWARDS. HE LAY ABOUT EIGHT WEEKS IN THIS CASE IN A CONTINUAL BURNING, SO SPENT THAT HE APPEARED A PERFECT ANATOMY OR SKELETON, NOTHING BUT SINEWS AND BONES, VEHEMENTLY RAGING FOR DRINK. Within a few days after his arrival at his own house, he departed this present life, yet an occasion to make us remember that secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but charity to man, to teach him to hope all things. Now many pastors and theologians have debated Spirits' case. Some believe in it was as bad as he represented it. I have seen such a review in a very old copy of the Gospel Standard magazine from the 1800s. William Perkins, one of the original Puritan writers, has a more favorable opinion when he wrote, "...oft it falls out that the conscience of God's child shall be so exceedingly tormented in temptation that he shall cry out, He is forsaken of God, and shall be damned." When, as indeed he still remains a dear child of God, as Christ our Savior did, God's well-beloved in the deepest assaults of Satan, And therefore the relation published of Francis Spira, his desperation, doth inconsiderately tax him for a castaway, considering that nothing befell him in the time of his desperation, but that which may befall the child of God. Yea, our own land can afford many examples which match Francis Spira, whether we regard the manner of his temptation or the deepness of his desperation." who yet, through the mercy of God, have received comfort. And therefore, in this case, Christian charity must ever bind us to think and speak the best. Though this is a lengthy introduction to The Man in the Iron Cage, some details that the author gives about it, in my humble opinion, are at least worth examining. I have myself assisted people on the phone or by letter who have feared that their day of grace was past. THE FIRST INTERESTING STATEMENT IN THE NARRATIVE OF JOHN Bunyan's PILGRIM'S PROGRESS ABOUT THE MAN IN THE IRON CAGE, THEN SAID CHRISTIAN TO THE INTERPRETER, BUT IS THERE NO HOPE FOR SUCH A MAN AS THIS? ASK HIM, SAID THE INTERPRETER. WE MAY WELL RESPOND THAT A PERSON IN THIS KIND OF DESPAIR MAY NOT BE THE BEST INTERPRETER OF THE REAL NATURE OF HIS PRESENT CONDITION. In the story of the man in the iron cage in Pilgrim's Progress, the person who interprets his condition is the person who is in despair. But then we have to ask, is the person who is in this kind of unremitting despair the best person to properly analyze his condition? It is a fairly well-known fact that during the Great Awakening, some religious terrors were caused by extreme melancholy. Jonathan Edwards wrote, In the latter part of May, it began to be very sensible that the Spirit of God was gradually withdrawing from us. And after this time, Satan seemed to be more let loose and raged in a dreadful manner. The first instance wherein it appeared was a person putting an end to his own life by cutting his throat. Now what's interesting, Edwards doesn't say so, but this was Jonathan Edwards' own relative. But, to quote Edwards, he was a gentleman of more than common understanding, of strict morals, religious in his behavior, and a useful and honorable person in the town, but was of a family that are exceedingly prone to the disease of melancholy, and his mother was killed with it. He had, from the beginning of this extraordinary time, been exceedingly concerned about the state of his soul, and there were some things in his experience that appeared very hopeful, but he durst entertain no hope concerning his own good estate. Towards the latter part of his time he grew much discouraged, and melancholy grew again upon him till he was fully overpowered by it, and was in a great measure past the capacity of receiving advice, or being reasoned with to any purpose the devil took the advantage and drove him into despairing thoughts. He was kept awake at night, meditating terror, so that he had scarce any sleep at all for a long time together. And it was observed at last that he was scarcely well capable of managing his ordinary business and was judged delirious by the coroner's inquest. End quote, narrative of surprising conversions. This degree of melancholy, as we said in the first, podcast was also the lot of timothy rogers the son of the learned puritan john rogers whose trial lasted for two years he wrote a book to console others in such a condition that has recently been reprinted called a discourse on melancholy and trouble of mind reprinted by soli deo gloria publications THE NEXT EXCHANGE IS ALSO INTERESTING, AND IS THE MAIN PART OF MY INQUIRY ABOUT COUNSELING SUCH A PERSON UNDER A STATE OF DESPAIR. THEN SAID CHRISTIAN TO THE INTERPRETER, BUT IS THERE NO HOPE FOR SUCH A MAN AS THIS? ASK HIM, SAID THE INTERPRETER. THEN SAID CHRISTIAN, IS THERE NO HOPE BUT YOU MUST BE KEPT IN THE IRON CAGE OF DESPAIR? NO, NONE AT ALL. WHY, THE SON OF THE BLESSED IS VERY PITIFUL. I have crucified him to myself afresh Hebrews 6, six. I have despised his person Luke nineteen fourteen. I have despised his righteousness, I have counted his blood as an unholy thing, I have done despot to the spirit of grace, and so on. It is a common view of theologians that persons who are guilty of the sins warned about in the epistle to the Hebrews do not express their fears with these kinds of comments. In our former podcast on this subject, we looked at the words of the theologian A. H. Strong, which were very helpful. But if we are counseling such individuals, we have no warrant to conclude that anyone is a reprobate or that their day of grace is past, as long as they have life within them. Their case is dangerous because they are rejecting mercy, and this has to be pressed to their conscience as well. But we say it is dangerous, not necessarily hopeless. Then said Christian to the interpreter, But is there no hope for such a man as this? Ask him, said the interpreter. Then Christian said, Is there no hope, but you must be kept in the iron cage of despair? No, none at all. What is interesting about this account between Christian and the man in the iron cage is that it has the same despairing tone that Bunyan knew himself as detailed in his own biography. He states during his fears that he had committed the unpardonable sin. Now was I as one bound. I felt myself shut up unto the judgment to come. Nothing now for two years together would abide with me, but damnation and an expectation of damnation. And now was I both a burden and a terror to myself. Nor did I ever so know as now what it was to be weary of my life and yet afraid to die. Oh, how gladly now would I have been anybody but myself, anything but a man, and in any condition but mine own, for there was nothing did pass more frequently over my mind, than that it was impossible for me to be forgiven my transgression, and to be saved from wrath to come, End quote. What is the difference between the two accounts, John Bunyan's testimony and the man in the iron cage? Is it not difficult to see that what led John Bunyan to despair was a sin in which he was taken in a fault? Galatians 6.1 The man in the iron cage, on the other hand, had been some time in a state of sinning against light and mercy. The man in the iron cage must be one whose sins, as it is written in 1 Timothy 5.24, are sins that are opened beforehand going before to judgment. But John Owen comments on this verse, God so passes judgment concerning them in this world as that there shall be no alteration in their state and condition to eternity, and this severity of God toward sinners under the gospel shutting them up under final impenitency. Owen goes on to say that this consists of four things: an example of his comments follows. Quote, God will actually punish them with, or inflict on them, hardness of heart and blindness of mind, that they never shall repent or believe, John 12, 39 and 40. Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. God will now judicially blind them and harden them, and by one means or other, everything that befalls them shall promote their induration. So it was with these Jews. The doctrine of Christ filled them with envy, His holiness with malice, and His miracles with rage and madness. Their table was a snare to them, and that which should have been for their good turned to their hurt. So is it with all them whom God in His severity hardens? Whether the outward means be continued unto them or not, all is one, everything shall drive them further from God, and increase their obstinacy against Him. From hence they become scoffers and persecutors, avowedly scorning and hating the truth, and herein it may be they shall please themselves until they are swallowed up in despair or the grave." This is a fearful judgment, but it is interesting to note that those who become scoffers and persecutors are not worried that they are in danger of perishing, they are inveterate in their enmity, not anxious about their coming judgment. The conclusion I would draw from this is that it would appear more hopeful for this man in the iron cage who was most anxious about his present condition than trying to give hope to persecutors who are spurning the very message of hope. Finally, we must not give way to the same despair as counselors of men's souls. For if the counselor himself has no glad tidings for great sinners and is himself in despair for them, What would that do but add to the certainty that the hearer we are trying to help will never have hope? As was discussed in a former podcast, when we were quoting the words of John Owen in his paraphrase of Psalm 130, he says, I dare not utterly despair and despond. Why? Because despair puts you out of the reach of hope. The Puritan William Gurnall dwelt with this at some length under the subject of the shield of faith in his famous book, The Christian in Complete Armor. And since it's so helpful, I want to quote it at length here. Despair opposes God in the greatest of all His commands. The greatest command, beyond all comparison in the whole Bible, is to believe. When those Jews asked our Lord Jesus, John 6, 28. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Mark the answer. Verse 29. This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he has sent. As if he has said, the most compendious way that I am able to give you is to receive me into your hearts by faith. Do this, and you do all in one. Now, if faith be the work of God above all others, then unbelief is the work of the devil, and that which he had rather thou shouldst do than any other sin, and despair is unbelief at the worst. Unbelief among sins is as a plague among diseases, the most dangerous, but when it rises to despair, then it is as a plague, when the tokens appearing that bring the certain message of death with them. Unbelief is despair in the bud. Despair is unbelief at its full growth. Despair has a way peculiar to itself of dishonoring God above other sins. Every sin wounds the law and the name of God through the law. But this wound is healed when the penitent sinner by faith comes to Christ and closes with him. God makes account that reparations now are fully made through Christ, whom the believer receives for the wrong done to his law and his name vindicated from the dishonor cast upon it by the creature's former iniquities, yea, that it appears more glorious, because it is illustrious, by the shining forth of one title of honor, not the least prized by God himself, his forgiving mercy, which could not have been so well known to the creature if not drawn forth into action upon this occasion." But what would you say is such a prodigious sinner, who when he has wounded the law is not willing to have it healed, when he has dishonored God, and that in a highly provoking manner, is not willing that the dirt he has cast on God's face should be wiped off? Methinks your color rises at the reading of this against such a wretch, and you are asking as once, Ahasuerus did Esther, who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? Esther seven five. Would you know? Truly the adversary and enemy is this wicked despair. The despairing soul is a person that will not let Christ make satisfaction for the wrong which by his sins he has done God. Suppose a man should wound another dangerously in his passion, and when he is done, will not let a surgeon come near to cure the wound he has made. Everyone would say his last act of cruelty was worse than his first. O my soul, saith faith, thou didst ill, yea, very ill, and breaking the holy laws of God, and dishonoring the name of the great God of heaven and earth. By it. Let your heart ache for this. But you do far worse by your despairing of mercy. In this act you reject Christ, and keep him from satisfying the justice of the law that is injured by you, and from redeeming the honor of his name from the reproach your sins have scandalized it with. What language speaks your despair but this? Let God come by his right and honor as he can. You will never be an instrument active in helping him to do it, by believing on Christ, in whom he may fully have them with advantage. Oh, what shame would despair put the mercy of God to in the sight of Satan, his worst enemy! He is overjoyed at this, to see all the glorious attributes of God served alike and divested of their honor. This is meat and drink to him. That cursed spirit desires no better music than to hear the soul ring the promises, like bells, backward, make no other use of them than to confirm it in his own desperate thoughts of its damnation, and to tell it that hell fire is kindled in his conscience, which no mercy in God will or can quench to eternity. As the bloody Jews and Roman soldiers exercised their cruelty on every part almost of Christ's body, crowning his head with thorns, goring his side with a spear, and fastening his hands and feet with nails, so the despairing sinner deals with the whole name of God. He does, as it were, put a mock crown on the head of his wisdom, setting it all to naught, and charging it foolishly as if the method of salvation was not laid with prudence by the all-wise God." He nails the hands of his almighty power while he thinks his sins are of that nature as puts him out of the reach and beyond the power of God to save him. He pierces the tender bowels of God's mercy when he cannot see enough in him to persuade him to hope for any favor or forgiveness at his hands. In a word, a despairing soul transfixes his very heart and will, while he unworthily frames notions of God as if he were unwilling to the work of mercy, and not so inclined to exercise acts of pardon and forgiveness on poor sinners, as the word declares him to be. Despair basely misrepresents him to the soul as if he were a lame God and had no feet, affections I mean, to carry him to such a work as forgiving sin. Now what does the sum of all this amount to? If you can without horror and amazement stand to cast it up and consider the weight of those circumstances which aggravate the flagitiousness of this unparalleled fact, surely it rises to no less than the highest attempt that the creature can make for the murdering of God himself, for the infinitude of God's wisdom, power, mercy, and all his attributes are more intrinsical to the essence and being of God than the heart's blood is to the life of a mortal man. Despair strengthens and enrages all other sins in the soul. There are none that fight so fiercely as those who look for no quarter. They think themselves dead men, therefore. They will sell their lives as dear as they can. Samson despaired of ever getting out of the Philistine's hands, his eyes being lost, and he unfit to make an escape. What does he meditate now upon that his case is desperate, but his enemies ruin? He doesn't care, though he pulls the house of his own head, so it may but fall on the Philistines also. If despair enters in, it is impossible to keep blasphemy out. Pray, therefore, and do your utmost to repel this dart. Lest it soon set your soul on a flame with this hell-fire of blasphemy. Here, O souls smitten for sin, who spend your lives in sighs, sobs, and tears for your horrid enemies. Would you again be seen fighting against God as fierce as ever? If you would not, take heed of despair.' If once you think that God's heart is hardened against you, your heart will not be long hardening against Him. And this, by the way, may administer comfort to the thoughts of some gracious but troubled souls who cannot find that they have any faith, yea, who are often reckoning themselves among despairs. Let me ask you who are in this sad condition this one thing. Can you find any love breathing in your heart toward God? though you can find no breath of love coming at present from him to you, and are tender and fearful of sinning against him, even while you seem to your own thoughts of hope for no mercy from him, if so be of good comfort. Your faith may be weak, but you are far from being under the power of despair." Desperate souls do not reserve any love for God or care to please Him. There is some faith surely in your soul which is the cause of those motions, though like the spring in a watch it, it be itself unseen when the other graces moved by it are visible. The greatness of the sin of despair appears in this, that the least sin venom by it is unpardonable, and without this the greatest is pardonable. That must needs of all sins be most abominable, which makes a creature incapable of mercy. Judas was not damned merely for his treason and murder. For others that had their hands deep in the same horrid fact obtained a pardon by faith in that blood, which through cruelty they shed, But they were these heightened into the greatest malignity possible, from the putrid stuff of despair and final impenitency, with which his wretched heart was filled, that he dies so miserable of, and now is infinitely more miserably damned for. Such be in despair, then, O let us shrink from the woeful gulf. Further on the subject of the fiery dart of despair, William Gurnall wrote, the third fiery dart which Satan lets fly at the Christian is his temptation to despair. This cursed fin thinks he can neither revenge himself further on God nor engrave his own image deeper on the creature than by this sin, which at one casts the greatest scorn upon God, and brings the creature nearest the complexion of devils and damned souls, who by lying continually under the scorching wrath of God in hell's horrid zone, are blacked all over with despair. This is a sin that of all Satan chiefly aims at. Other sins are but as previous dispositions to introduce that and make the creature more receptive for such a temptation. In the 1640s, a book was written by a Thomas Fuller, and the name of the book is called The Cause and Cure of a Wounded Conscience. It is a dialogue between somebody named Timotheus and Philologus, and for short, I'm going to call them Timothy and Philo. And here's how it goes. Timothy, But sir, I have committed the sin against the Holy Ghost, which the Savior of mankind pronounces unpardonable, and therefore all your counsels and comforts to me are in vain. Philo, The devil, the father of lies, has added this lie to those which he has told before in persuading you that you have committed the sin against the Holy Ghost, for that sin is ever attended with these two symptoms. First, The part guilty thereof never grieves for it, nor conceives the least sorrow in his heart for the sin he has committed. The second, which follows on the former, he never wishes or desires any pardon, but is delighted and pleased with his present condition. Now if you can truly say that your sins are a burden to you, that you do desire forgiveness, and would give anything to compass and obtain it, be of good comfort, You have not as yet, and by God's grace, never shall commit the unpardonable offense. I will not define how near you have been to it. As David said to Jonathan, there is not a hair's breadth between death and me. So it may be you have missed it very narrowly, but assure yourself you are not as yet guilty of it. Another famous book from the Puritan period which deals with this subject is William Guthrie's Trial of a Saving Interest, another book which has been reprinted, and he spends a whole chapter on it, chapter 4, of The Sin Against the Holy Ghost. Objection. I suspect I am guilty of the sin against the Holy Ghost, and so am incapable of pardon, and therefore I need not think of believing on Jesus Christ for the saving of my soul. Answer, although none should charge this sin on themselves or on others, unless they can prove and make clear the charge according to Christ's example, and whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Yet for satisfying the doubt, I shall, number one, show what is not the sin against the Holy Ghost, properly so-called, because there be some gross sins which people do unwarrantably judge to be this unpardonable sin. Number two, I shall show what is the sin against the Holy Ghost, and number three, I shall draw some conclusions in answer directly to the objection. As for the first, there be many gross sins which, although as all other sins they be sins against the Holy Ghost, who is God equal and one with the Father and the Son, And are done against some of his operations and motions, yet they are not the sin against the Holy Ghost, which is the unpardonable sin, as blaspheming of God under bodily tortures is not that sin, for some saints fell into this. Number two, the hating of good in others. While I am not convinced that it is good, but in my light do judge it to be evil, yea, the speaking against it, yea, the persecuting of it in that case is not the sin against the Holy Ghost. For all these will be found in Paul before he was converted, and he obtained mercy because he did these things ignorantly. Number 3. Heart rising at the prosperity of others in the work and way of God, while I love it in myself. Yea, the rising of heart against providence, which often expresses itself against the creatures nearest our hand. Yea, this rising of heart entertained and maintained, although they be horrid things, leading towards that unpardonable sin, yet are not that sin. For these may be in the saints... Proceeding from self-love, which cannot endure to be darkened by another, and proceeding from some cross and their idol under a fit of temptation. The most part of all this was in Jonah. Number four. Not only are not decays in what once was in the man, and falling into gross sins against light after the receiving of the truth, this unpardonable sin, for then many of the saints in Scripture were undone. But further, apostasy from much of the truth is not that sin, for that was in Solomon, and in the church of Corinth and Galatia. Yea, denying, yea, forswearing of the most fundamental truth under a great temptation is not this sin, for then Peter had been undone. Number five is resisting, quenching, Grieving and vexing of the Spirit of God by many sinful ways are not this unpardonable sin, for they are charged with those who are called to repentance in Scripture, and not shut out as guilty of this sin. So neither reiterating sin against light is a sin against the Holy Ghost, although it leads towards it. For such was Peter's sin, in denying Christ, so was Jehoshaphat's sin, in joining with Ahab and Jehoram number 6 purposes and attempts of self-murder and even purposes of murdering godly men the party being under a sad fit of temptation yea actual self-murder Although probably it often joins in the issue with this unpardonable sin, which ought to make every soul look upon the very temptation to it with horror and abhorrence, yet it is not the sin against the Holy Ghost. The jailer intended to kill himself upon a worse account than many poor people do, in the sight and sense of God's wrath and of their own sin and corruption, yet that jailer obtained pardon. And Paul, before his effectual calling, was accessory unto the murder of many saints and intended to kill more, as himself grants. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, And I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities." Although all these are dreadful sins, each of them deserving wrath everlasting, and not being repented of bring endless vengeance, especially the last cuts off hope of relief, for aught that can be expected in an ordinary way, yet none of these is the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost, and so under any of these there is hope to him that hath an ear to hear the joyful sound of the covenant. All manner of such sin and blasphemy may be forgiven, as is clear in the Scripture where these things are mentioned. As for the second thing, let us see what the sin against the Holy Ghost is. It is not a simple act of transgression, but a combination of many mischievous things involving soul and body ordinarily in guilt. We thus describe it. It is a rejecting and opposing of the chief gospel truth and way of salvation made out Particularly to a man, by the Spirit of God and the truth and good thereof, and that avowedly, freely, willfully, maliciously, and despitefully, working hopeless fear. There are three places of Scripture which speak most of this sin, and from thence we will prove every part of this description, in so far as may be useful to our present purpose, by which it will appear that none who have a mind for Christ need stumble at what is spoken of this sin in Scripture. Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son or man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Secondly, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Third verse for if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, and is counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and has done despet unto the Spirit of grace. Number 1. Then let us consider the object about which this sin or sinful acting of the man guilty thereof is conversant, and that is the chief gospel truth and way of salvation, both which come to one thing. It is the way which God has devised for saving sinners by Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah and Savior, by whose death and righteousness men are to be saved, as he hath held him forth in the ordinances, confirming the same by many mighty works, and Scripture tending thereto. This way of salvation is the object. The Pharisees opposed this, that Christ was the Messiah. And all the people said, Is not this the Son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. The wrong is done against the Son of God. It is impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. And against the blood of the covenant, and the Spirit graciously offering to apply these things. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden under foot the Son of God, and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and has done despot unto the Spirit of grace. Number 2. In the description consider the qualification of this object. It is singularly made out to the party by the Spirit of God, both in the truth and good thereof. This says, first, that there must be knowledge of the truth and way of salvation. The Pharisees knew that Christ was the heir, but when they saw the Son, they said among themselves, This is the heir, come, let us kill him. The party has knowledge, but if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Second, that knowledge of the thing must not swim only in the head, but there must be some half-heart persuasion of it. Christ knew the Pharisees' thoughts, and so did judge them, and that the opposite of what they spake was made out upon their heart. There is a tasting which is beyond simple enlightening, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Yea, there is such a persuasion ordinarily as leads to a deal of outward sanctification, who is counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith they were sanctified an unholy thing. Third, this persuasion must not only be of the truth of the thing, but of the good of it. The party tasteth the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, and he apprehends the thing is eligible. Fourth, This persuasion is not made out only by strength of argument, but also by an enlightening work of God's Spirit, shining on the truth, and making it conspicuous. Therefore is that sin called a sin against the Holy Ghost. The persons are said to have been made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and to do despot unto the Spirit of grace, who was in the nearest step of a gracious operation with them. Number three, in this description, considering the acting of the party against the object so qualified, it is a rejecting and opposing of it, which imports, first, that men have once, some way at least, been in hands with it, or had the offer of it, as is true of the Pharisees. Second, that they do reject, even with contempt, what they had of it, or in their offer. The Pharisees deny it and speak disdainfully of Christ. This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. They fall away, intending to put Christ to an open shame. Third, the men set themselves against it by the spirit of persecution, as the Pharisees did still. They rebel against it. Therefore, it is called a blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. They would crucify Christ again if they could. They are adversaries. Number four, consider the properties of this acting. First, it is avowed that, is, not seeking to shelter or hide itself. The Pharisees speak against Christ publicly. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. They would have Christ brought to an open shame. They forsake the ordinances which savor that way not forsaken the assembling of ourselves together, as a manner of some is, and despise the danger, for looking for indignation they trample that blood still. Second, the party acteth freely. It is not from unadvisedness, nor from force or constraint, but enacting a free choice. Nothing doth force the Pharisees to speak against and persecute Christ. They crucify to themselves. They react a murder of their own free accord, and in their own bosom, none constraining them. They sin a free choice, or as the word may be rendered, spontaneously. For if we sin willfully, after we have received a knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Third, it is acted willfully. They are so resolute, they will not be dissuaded by any offer, are the most precious means, as is clear in the foregoing scriptures. Fourth, it is done maliciously, so that it proceeds not so much, if at all, from a temptation of pleasure, profit, or honor. It proceeds not from fear or force, or from any good, end, proposed, but out of heart malice against God and Christ, and the advancement of His glory and kingdom, so that it is of the very nature of Satan's sin, who has an irreconcilable hatred against God, and the remedy of sin, because his glory is thereby advanced. This is a special ingredient in this sin. The Pharisees are found guilty of heart malice against Christ, since they spake so against him, and not against their own children's casting out devils. And this is the force of Christ's argument. If I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast him out? They do their utmost to crucify Christ again and to bring him to an open shame. They are adversaries like the devil. Fifth, it is done despitefully. The malice must bewray itself. The Pharisees must proclaim that Christ has correspondence with devils. He must be put to an open shame and crucified again. They must tread underfoot that blood and do despot to the spirit, so that the party had rather perish a thousand times than be in Christ's debt for salvation. The last thing in the description is the usual attendant or consequences of this sin. It works desperate and hopeless fear. They fear him whom they hate with a slavish, hopeless fear such as devils have. A certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. They know that God will put out his power against them. They tremble in the remembrance of it. And if they could be above him and destroy him, they would. And since they cannot reach that, they hate with the utmost of heart malice, and do persecute him, and all that is his, with despite. As for the third thing proposed, namely the conclusions to be drawn from what is said, in which we will speak directly to the objection, number one, as I hinted before, since the sin against the Holy Ghost is so remarkable, and may be well known where it is, none should charge themselves with it unless they can prove and make clear the charge. For it is a great wrong done unto God to labor to persuade my soul that he will never pardon me. It is a very way to make me desperate and to lead me to the unpardonable sin. Therefore, unless you can and dare say that you hate the way which God has devised for the saving of sinners, and you resolve to oppose the prosperity of his kingdom, both with yourself and others, out of malice and despot against God, you ought not to suspect yourself guilty of the sin. Whatever you have done against God, if you do repent of it and wish it were undone, you cannot be guilty of the sin, for in it heart, malice, and despite against God still prevail. If you are content to be his debtor for pardon, and would be infinitely obliged to him for it, then you cannot, in that case, be guilty of the sin against the Holy Ghost. For as we showed before, they who are guilty of it do despise God." that they would not be his debtor for salvation. Whatever you have done, if you have a desire after Jesus Christ, and to look with a grieved heart after him, and cannot think of parting with his blessed company forever, or if you must part with him, yet you do wish well to him and all his, you need not suspect yourself to be guilty of this unpardonable sin, for there can be no such hatred of him in your bosom as is necessarily required to make up that sin. If you would be above the reach of that sin and secure against it forever, then go work up your heart to be pleased with salvation by Jesus Christ, and to close with God in Him, acquiescing in Him as a sufficient ransom, and rest as we have been pressing before, and yield to Him to be saved in His way. Do this in good earnest, and you shall be forever put out of the reach of that deadly thing with which Satan does affright so many poor seekers of God. We will close out this discussion from the discourses of Thomas Chalmers, the theologian from Scotland. I think his words are very helpful. The sin against the Holy Ghost is not some obscure and useless doctrine which occupies its hidden corner in the field of revelation, and forms a legitimate topic of speculation only to those who have attained some rare and monstrous distinction by a daring feat of impiety, it carries a lesson along with it which applies to you all at this very moment. If there be some old among you, upon the obduracy of whose hackneyed consciences the call we have now lifted in your hearing makes no practical impression. Now, some of the words that he uses in here are very helpful. Obduracy—that's complete hardness of heart. The gospel call makes no practical impression. In other words, you don't care about it. Let me quote, Then look not for the sin against the Holy Ghost in any guilty act by which some passage of your former history is deformed. It consists in that repeated act by which you have turned the every call of the Gospel away from you, and the evidence of it does not lie in anything that memory can furnish you with. Out the materials of the history that is past. The evidence of it lies in the present condition of your soul as to its moral and religious sensibility. In other words, Thomas Chalmers is saying, if you have committed it, you have no religious sensibility. You are obdurate. You are hard-hearted. You are not sensible. And if that sensibility is so far deranged as to beget in you at this moment no impulse towards your turning unto God, and that way of appointed mediatorship that is made known to us in the New Testament, this is a fail and alarming symptom as to you, and well have you reason to suspect and to anticipate and to tremble. Now what's interesting about that is the very persons that committed it are not the ones who are trembling. Though they should, they do not. Again, if there be some old among you who after a sleep so long and so profound that it bore a resemblance to the irrecoverable sleep of death are now visited with a movement and a desire and a concern after these things and feel a readiness in you to be all that Christ would have you to be and are looking earnestly towards the way of His salvation and long to be established upon it, then we have no power of divination into the way or the mind of the unsearchable spirit All that we can do is put a fair interpretation upon the facts that are before us. And the fact of an arrested conscience, even on the eleventh hour of an indolent and a rebellious day, speaks for itself and tells you that he has not yet left you and we feel not that we are exceeding our warrant by a single inch when we try to cheer you on by the language of encouragement and call upon you not to quench the spirit, not to let this movement in your heart pass unproductive away from you, not to make of it but one transitory glimpse previous to an everlasting departure, but to follow out the impulse that you have gotten and drink in all the comfort that the free grace of the gospel is fitted to inspire, and aspire after all the strictness of walk and conversation which becomes the profession of it, and let not the imploring cry for the clean heart and the right spirit cease to ascend to the throne of God, through the channel of His Son, till the answer come down upon you in all its fullness and your repentance be perfected. In quote Thomas Chalmers.
1: Stillwater's revival books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com.